Explore the depths of your curiosity with aerospace engineer John Connolly, Columbia Space Center's Benjamin Dickow, and CEO of Heavy Metal Magazine, Matthew Medney, as they bring scientists, engineers, and authors on a journey of discovery. This is putting the science in science fiction, where fiction and science collide. Human, a grand story of human manipulation. <laughs> so, so, like using religion and science in like a weird reverse way as a weapon. It's, I mean, it, the concepts are. I, I can I can see why it's like one part of some sort of massive epic that Asimov is just like starting to form. So yeah, I'm gonna mm-hmm. have to, I have a second foundation on my shelf, so I'm gonna have to wait and grab the third one ASAP and burn through. Wait, so you said that the first season is going to cover the first three books? I, I I I have to go back and read, but I I don't think any of book of that book is in the show. Oh, I wonder if it went. I wonder if it like started because he wrote this first, but then there's a whole bunch, and then there's the ones like pre was it prelude mm-hmm. to Foundation. Oh, yeah, gosh. like 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 the show the show the first season without giving away too much is like the formation of the foundation at the empire. Oh, got it, got it, got it. I thought it was well, that, all. That, 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 that. I didn't even know that it was a series. Oh, so this book Sorry, is the saying? formation of the foundation. Yeah, wait, yeah, I can hear you. Um, the formation of the okay. foundation is probably in the first. 50 pages of this book or first 40 pages like it happens and you move past it and there's you keep time jumping Mm -hmm. now like every 15 or 20 years and the characters keep changing and at the end of this it's 100 years later and the foundation which is now in control of four systems primarily through a religion has like finally come come up against (laughs) a wall no 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 so is it like um, the show do cover any of that do you have cleon the second in yours no no the main the other main character besides harry selden is um oh my god saldor harden <laughs> oh, which oh, is very different or i want i wonder I maybe Maybe it's not even drawing from this book. Like maybe it looked at just the entire chronology and it picked from the very beginning. Yeah. It, 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 it does make it feel more that way, for sure. Um, I'm trying to. Huh. It's very interesting because I'm looking at the cast. Oh, and seeing. Wait, do you names? have Gal? Do you have Gal uh, Dornick in your book? Yes, um, she is at the very beginning. She's there for like a chapter. Oh, she's Dad, in the you entire have foundation. Season. Oh wow! Okay. What did I just, I just say? What What book no. do you have? I can't see it. So yeah, yeah, foundation. I, I, oh, yeah, the first. Yeah, or the yeah, yeah. Yeah, John, I think you need to just because uh, I, I again haven't read those books in a long time. Um, I think the the show just pulled from the ethos of mm-hmm. it, 
and it's not uh, following any okay. chronology. <laughs> so, 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 I mean, dude, Gale is like an integral character of the entire season. Oh my god, no, that, Gale. You don't even hear Gale is in the first. Uh, let's see. 41 yeah like maybe the first 50 pages like that's that's gale and then you never hear of that character again and you're on to like another new character that's like a solid third of the book and then another one there and then a main one moot mort something uh no mallow um yeah that's kind of what i found interesting because it was like this show i wondered if the show was gonna be like an episode her sort of thing in which case it would almost feel like anthology because it would be jumping through time as this story takes place but it sounds like they are not going that route and they're probably like fleshing no. out they're like taking the season to flesh out this time period that was five chapters in the book yes so be very careful uh, about caring is well, my, that's, uh... that's fine now now that i already know that I I feel fine about watching it. <laughs> there's there I feel like there's zero threat of anything being ruined. Zero. Uh, Absolutely uh, zero. Oh, so Ben, I haven't seen you in so, forever. I mean, we're already we're already oh, yeah. cold open here. We've like started recording. <laughs> yeah, I okay. love it. Like, let's just let, we're just gonna keep this rolling. People who are listening, welcome back. Taking a couple of weeks off. Um, we're going to be regularly back on very soon, but uh, uh, we're excited to be here with you tonight. As you can hear, we're very excited about Foundation. I want to talk about the book and that. I want to talk about um, the uh, – what is what, what – uh, John, help me. Which spacecraft does the uh, government want to purchase at a discount? Oh, it wants to spend. It wants the uh, space launch system for half the cost. Yeah. <laughs> so they. So the the project they've been working on for twenty years. They're finally like, oh wait, it's too expensive. Oh yeah. So no 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 no. They're saying now there's a, a a push and initiative that NASA wants to use the SLS into the twenty fifties. And be flying at least a mission a year on it, and they want it at half the price. Nice, but again, like this thing has been on the drawing board and talked about for twenty years. Like, there's still like another five years to go, I think, on this thing. Um, it's the most cursed cursed project that's ever been. I was reading old um, quotes about it, and there was some politician who was stating that. Uh, you know, if it's going to cost ten billion. If it if it ends up costing an eleven and a half, we should just abandon the whole thing. It's like thirty billion dollars <laughs> later. Thirty billion dollars later. <laughs> I couldn't believe what I, I was saying. Yeah. Matt said it to me. This is ludicrous. Is this real? Is this an Onion article? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's. It, I really, honestly, it's a jobs program, right? So it's like, it's. It should have been cut years ago. It's not going to be cut because it's keeping, you know, Alabama and, and the southeastern states especially, like, doing its thing. And it's just going to be there. I, I don't even know if it's ever going to fly. Yeah, the politics are 
are, yeah. abs- are absurd. And I feel like they were never put on more obvious display than when NASA selected uh, SpaceX for the lunar lander. And then instantly the political exactly. backlash that came from all the senators of the 10 states where the SLS is built and Bezos suddenly caring so much because of the political right. weight of Amazon and Washington, mm-hmm. both, a, both, both the city and the state. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only been, I mean, it's always been that way, but it's, yeah, it's definitely been ratcheted up more, especially as SpaceX has been just more successful, kind of like, yeah, we're going to, whether we're getting the contract or not, we're still going to be doing all the stuff that we said we were going to do. And, you know, screw you if you don't want to get on board. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and also, yeah, Jeff Bezos has enough money if he really wanted to put the financial effort behind Blue Origin that it needs to mm-hmm. get the new Glenn working. They could do it. You know, mm-hmm. he likes he, he cries about Elon, but then he doesn't actually try. So, as well as I just wanted to point out, when I'm glad in the my era of modern technology that's able to voice filter, because when I watched the Blue Origin with William Shatner go up and come back down, mm-hmm. and William Shatner is clearly having a profound human moment in the foreground, sure. and there's just people screaming in the background. And Bezos is interrupting him to ask for that bottle of champagne. I was about to lose my mind. <laughs> the, the, the disrespect for the entire scene. What is this yeah. coming from? Anyway. Yeah. Um, while the- Although I do feel, yes, I agree. but And I think Shatner was definitely having genuine moments. But he also, like, why? Like, it, he was just feeding... Bezos and Blue Origin, like all of the all of the PR that they would ever want. Why would they? Why would he ever stop that stream of consciousness of like just encapsulating what they're trying to do so well? Totally. No. To- well, the the, the 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 difference, right, is Blue Origin's mission to date is not necessarily to push humanity forward but to try to leverage, monetize, and take advantage of our most aspirational ideas of what is possible. Whereas, Mm. you know, whereas SpaceX or Boeing or Lockheed are just like, and all have their pros and cons and all have their price differentials, but those three companies are like, buckle up. Let's see how far out there we can go. Cause this is fucking weird, Mike. Yeah. I'm so sorry. You will definitely have to bleep that out. It has been a minute. <laughs> I caught myself as I said it. <laughs> uh, hey, speaking of being a minute, Mike, you were Mike, you were just asking me like you haven't seen me for a long time. So, have I, how many episodes have I missed? Oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah. yeah we wouldn't do it without. Well. No, I appreciate that. That's really nice. But um, but it got me thinking, like, so I know, Matt, weren't you in New York and in Baltimore with the Saturn Awards and stuff like that? What's the deal? What's going on? I, I wasn't at the Saturn Awards personally. Um, Chris Longo, our uh, chief sales officer, went, which was amazing. But I was mm-hmm. a uh, keynote speaker at New York Comic Con talking about NFTs and collectibles, which was cool. wild. It was really cool. Um you know, just technology 
in general is in such an interesting flux right now. I, hmm. um, I, I, I was, um, I was seeing this technology at Comic-Con, which allows anybody who is just geofenced in there to be delivered mm-hmm. a specific ad to their Hulu account about a new upcoming superhero show. And it only got delivered to people who went to Comic-Con. And I was like, huh. that is wild. I know that's like <laughs> ad tech and it's not sexy and it's just whatever. But sure. that was really wild. What about um, it, it, what about collectible? I mean, NFTs. I kind of kind of got my head around like digital stuff. But what's the collectibles at end of it? Wait, say that again. So I'm just wondering. You said you were on a panel about NFTs and collectibles, and I can kind of yeah. understand the collectible side or the NFT side of it. But how does how do NFTs and collectibles come together? I, I think they're the future of collectibles. I think. Oh. Interesting. I, I think you know once uh, you know we have our oasis or our metaverse, you know the three of us and Mike and our listeners who might be you know millennials or older, maybe we have some Gen Zers, but the millennials and older like tactile things. Like I bought mm-hmm. this little statue thing to um, to display my planetary society card because I thought it'd be cute. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Um. But like, you know, the Gen Zers are going to want that in their digital space when they go live in their metaverse and they're living in VR. And I think that when you go into those spaces, having art or having shoes or having a magazine to read in that space is going to be really interesting. And Mm. all of the items, artifacts, relics that you might... um, uh, be interested in are going to be NFTs or on blockchain as a way to authenticate ownership once you enter the metaverse. Hmm. Interesting. Who was on the panel with you? Um, so it was me. It was an artist, writer, cartoonist named Gideon Kendall, who's an amazing guy. I love Gideon. It was Rob Solkovitz, who is the um, um, comics contributor for Forbes. And it was a a guy named Ben Arnon, who is one of the founders of one of the uh, NFT platforms we work with called Curio. Um, And then there's this guy, Mike, I really hope I didn't get that wrong, who's the new um, um, Mystery Theater uh, 3000 producer. Oh, no way. Yeah. So it was really interesting kind of group of talking heads trying to figure out, you know, and just discuss why NFTs are interesting. I also think they're interesting because, you know, whatever it is, 20, 30, 30 years ago, max, we started telling artists, comic book artists, hey, drawing on paper and scanning is like really inefficient. Why don't you get like an iPad or a Wacom or a tablet, mm-hmm. draw there so we can get the art faster. But then when you do that, you lose the original that these artists used to sell at conventions right. and be right. able to make additional income on. And now NFTs solved that problem for digital artists. 
And I just think mm-hmm. that's really fascinating. So there's all of mm-hmm. these different angles. I'm, I'm really big into NFTs. We'll talk about it offline, just how big. Um, mm-hmm. But there's, uh, I mean, I have, a, I have an NFT drop going right now with crypto.com. It's a, I, I produced a motion comic documentary where we did an eight minute uh, journey through the rise, which is George C. Romero's prequel to his father's night. And mm. it overlays a narrative story that George narrates about what it's like to have grown up with your father being the dude who created the genre of zombies. And mm-hmm. that is a gamified NFT that we're um, doing right now, which is really interesting. Um, mm. And um, just finding interesting ways to merge technology and traditional media is really um, the most important thing. Yeah, and sure. and 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 I guess you know a good um, a good segue back into science fiction because we haven't probably told you this. But um, about a month ago, we did a Beyond Kuiper NFT drop. Oh, cool. And we did 2,700 items that sold out in 17 oh. minutes. Whoa, wow. Holy cow. Yeah. We have some real fans. It's pretty cool. Yeah. It's pretty cool to Congratulations. see. Congratulations. What was, I mean, is there like a base price that people buy into or invest so, in, I guess? So there was 2,100 of the planets that you see there Mm -hmm. and each planet was a utility that unlocked a digital reading of one of heavy metals books and the planets ranged from forty dollars to 175 and everything Mm -hmm. in between and then we had four pieces of art as well that were just minted as like art and that was the offering and yeah Mm -hmm. it uh it flew Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. I thought it was pretty, pretty cool. Um, and then, um, and then, yeah. Um, where do we want to uh, dive in? I mean, you know, Elon Musk might be the first trillionaire is pretty wild. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're- he's got 7 billion to go, 700 billion to go, right? Yeah. But apparently it's, uh, it's coming fast. Huh. I mean, if he buys it, if he would say buys Bitcoin all over again, and then continues to <laughs> that that can that can close the gap pretty quick. Um, well, totally. I was just thinking, uh, you know, we were just talking a little bit about Kuiper, and I saw it uh, in a bookstore the other day because I went in to buy a copy of Blind Spot for a friend. After reading it, upon the recommendation of another friend, Ben, did you happen to finish mm-hmm. it or start it at least? No, I'm about. I'm yeah. Oh yeah, I'm probably. Yeah, probably three quarters through. Okay. So, I mean, like, what's, you know, for, for the parts that you've done, what do you think so far about, like, just the world building, some of the concepts in it? Yeah, no, I think it's great. And I think the, um, yeah, uh, I think the, the concept of, like, the fluidity of, you know, not really who's alive, but, like, like the the value of consciousness and stuff like that, and the um, this idea of the um, you know the the captain being AI but controlling a, a, another being and stuff like that. I think that's super super interesting. Um, and I yeah I like the hard science of it. I like the fact that there was like a chain of 
of phases of missions to this thing and to try to figure out what what it was and that it you know an event happens in the past and then something else happens and it kind of they kind of connect to that and then they figure out this whole sort of mission protocol and how to how they're going to figure out what this thing is I thought that was super interesting or it is super interesting yeah when they're when they say for a moment consider you're a machine and then they're the phase one probes that are just being launched out as quickly as possible for intercept and then you know they pass yeah. by for a second and they even say by soul by mission command see a heat death and i thought that, that was the fantastic parting words from a one-way from a, <laughs> from a one-way space probe um <laughs> it uh yeah they had to elaborate a little bit more of what you said before the really interesting concept that conscious that intelligence does not necessarily predicate consciousness and that could you possibly right. have right vastly intelligent beings or entities capable of traveling between stars that might be technically not self-aware yeah well and that always that makes me think a lot of like the animal world right or like octopuses or octopi or crows or something like that like the the power for us as human beings to anthropomorphize intelligence is amazing um and i'm not saying that that we shouldn't like octopi octopi are very intelligent and crows are and we don't know so i don't, I don't think that we should be slaughtering them or anything like that because oh they're just animals but but the fact that it's like like when it, when we talk about that these are intelligent animals we automatically as people kind of map our own meaning of what intelligence means which means an emotional life and a consciousness and all this kind of stuff but you know there is some of that that's evident in those two species but still in general a lot of what we talk about is through our the lens of us and it's super hard to get out of it um and so i thought it was really cool that the the author is really attempting to do, or was really attempting to do that, to like pull the anthropomorphization out of it and, and explore that idea of, um, what are those things, the scramblers. Yeah, um, scramblers. You know, that they, the, the measure of intelligence is the, uh, the, like the motor skills basically, but not necessarily the, what we would say is a smart being or anything like that. I thought that was yeah, cool. that they have, you know, these beings appeared invisible because they knew how to move to start and stop in between the unconscious motions in our eye of which we're not processing. And, you know, right. that requires inability to be, to do nothing less than read all of the magnetic activity in our mind down to the ability to be able to rearrange and move our thoughts, even while that's still just sort of an automated response for them in their environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's mm -hmm. definitely it's one of one of the most thought provoking science fiction books I've read in a while. From the really heady concepts about thought yeah. and consciousness, uh, Foundation on the other end, mm -hmm. really, you know, it was a science fiction setting, but you know, everyone is human, and it's all of these human motifs oh, yeah. that are just put upon a larger scale yeah and not to not to be topical but that's how i feel about dune is the same way right is that that's this big huge epic but it still it still taps into very human motivations and and uh it's a very human story and it's about 
in some ways it's about how the behaviors of humans get split over, you know, tens of, what is it, 10,191, 10, so however many thousands of years it is. And then it's all about bringing it back together into us, you know, into what humanity is um, or the, the full package of humanity. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, I agree. Like there's that, there's that sort of scale of exploring things. And then there's the um, blind sight, which is really about sort of like the biological reality of, of all of this stuff. Yeah. The, uh, I just want to touch upon the concept of vampires in that, well, well, well when, I, when I think of vampires, yes. so when I think of vampires, I generally don't think of sci-fi, but it depends on. We're right before Halloween, yeah. everybody, by the way. Should but be I do want to know one of my favorite vampire movies, Underworld, that is, and, and that's oh, yeah. even blatant. Oh, definitive. Wait, 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 John. One of your favorite, <laughs> definitively the best vampire movie. I hold a special place in my heart for Blade 2. <laughs> but that's also because... Ow. How dare you? It's Guillermo del Toro. Listen. The style. How dare you? It's great. It's good. Kate Beckinsale hates you. Kate Beckinsale in that level outfit made me question my homosexuality at one point in time. This became the most guy podcast of all of a sudden. I was going to say, I... I just finished. I, uh, I just finished watching uh, the last bit of um, what we do in the shadows, and man, uh, that is the best vamp. I mean, so f- so funny, ridiculous. It's funny. hilarious. It's so good. Yeah, we we were watching it right now. We're still a couple episodes back, but it's gold. It's, Which one? It's good. Taika. What we do in the shadows. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know how I feel about that. Yeah, guy. absolutely. <laughs> what was I say? You would. You... All right, so. We don't need it. We don't need to get into that on air. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, well, Ben, I'll, I'll, Underworld, I'll yes, Underworld is great. But the close, yeah, Underworld's great. But the closed loop in, in, in sorry, John, continue. The closed loop in Blind Sight, vampires were an ancient branch of humanity that right. evolutionary split off from us. I think you know, seven hundred thousand years ago, and then. Mm-hmm. Over time, all the myths that are common with vampires, a lot of them are derived from physiological genetic consequences in them. For one, they needed, there's some enzymes they couldn't produce, so they had to eat people. That was the only source. They still had almost the same birth rate as their prey, which is not advantageous for the survival of a predator. So they had to learn to hibernate for decades at a time, which is also advantageous because they sort of then would slip into myth and they would always hunt in extremely small numbers at night and they coexisted with humanity for... Is that you, Ben? Is someone outside having... (laughs) Somebody just... Yeah, like, sorry about that. That's like a major... There's a uh, some sort of motorcycle I, just went by. No, I, it's I not me. To, it's honestly impressive, more than anything else, that someone could have an engine that loud. Oh god, yes. That I could start hearing that like three blocks down the street. The Doppler effect is strong. Yes, yes. 
Anyway, what what about yes the the biological origins of the myth of vampires? Yeah. Yes, and and the and they had something called the crucifix glitch, which was that the way their neural feedback worked from their visual cortex, they could not simultaneously process vertical and horizontal lines. It would cause a synaptic misfiring, <laughs> which would give them uh, seizures. So if someone and, yeah. and, and straight yeah, say, so right angles. Intersecting right angles are almost non-existent in nature. And so at the dawn of civilization, when humans began building straight lines and using Euclidean geometry, most of the vampires were killed off or died off as a result. And it just it's mm-hmm. it's out, it's outlandish, but I love that someone was able to find such a thorough oh, yeah. gen, a genetic science way of, of explaining their existence. Yeah. Yeah. No, the peeling back all of that and getting to like a, to, yeah, getting to a, like a total taxonomy of of the evolution of vampires is just amazing. And it would be interesting because that some of the theories thrown around that book are also, you know, if the vampire were the vampires a natural balance population balancing force to humans, which once mm. they were either mm. went extinct or the humans killed them all off. You know, slowly over the millennia, our population then expanded to an unsustainable number. Mm-hmm. So the vampires are the good mm-hmm. guys, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're definitely not by reading mm-hmm. the book, but <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, right. Yeah, so you'll you'll enjoy the end of the book is equally wild, and yeah, you'll okay. have a good time. Um, nice, nice. Let's see some other things that I wanted to bring up. This circles back to our, our NASA budget conversation at the beginning. Um, oh, so yeah. I've been listening to the Planetary Radio, which has been amazing, and they were talking about NIAC. So, and this this is my first introduction of, of knowing this. I figured like, you might be more familiar with it because of your JPL connections. Um, mm-hmm. But the the NASA Institute mm-hmm. for Advanced Concepts. And it's mm-hmm. a NASA-funded uh, organization which is taking all of these wild, advanced, innovative concepts that are to, you know, direct paradigm-shifting methods of improving our potential in aerospace and in space travel. And one of the things that they were pointing out was that there's only one phase three selected each year and that most of these projects should absolutely go to look for their own funding. And I just listened to, you know, they were, they were only mentioning a couple of them. But one of the things that they were talking about was this woman who mm-hmm. was giving the interview was sitting on a stool that had been grown from mushrooms, that they have genetically <laughs> engineered and tailored them in a way, and that, and that they're able to take wood chips, for example, and grow it into these structures that are strong enough that they're now i mean that stool was able to support a several hundred pound person Uh, and then they went on to Mm -hmm. talk about how we could you know if we had certain type of carbon rich raw material that we could possibly use the mushrooms to grow something that looks akin to particle board Um, but that we could use it Mm. to help one from a psychological perspective to break up the endless sort of steel motif that we would generally have. Uh, two, able to grow small mm-hmm. practical items and/or structures that 
otherwise we would have to fabricate by more laborious means and then these, these you know fungi spores are small in transport form we, we could bring a lot of those on a spaceship and, and but just thinking that these ideas mm-hmm. are just like right there at the edge and all they need is i mean right place right time and the money and i'm just wondering you know if, if i already could become aware mm-hmm. of this many in this small amount of time like how many are out there how 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 many people have already solved the problem oh, i'm Yeah, I, I agree. I think, you know, it's like, well, DARPA, so Department of Defense has a similar sort of skunk works. And, uh, you know, then there's like the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit think tank, but they do all that sort of future planning and stuff like that, too. It's um, I, I think that there's tons of stuff out there that are just at the edge of of being widely known or or done um, because there are so many of these groups. I mean, just, you know, think about. You know, let's say you're part of that that think tank in NASA and you meet, let's say you meet, I don't know, six times a year, a dozen times a year, and you have like, you know, a, a full day brainstorm or something like that. Right there, you've got like a few dozen ideas and then you know, kind of pull those out and you're doing that constantly. I just There's got to be just all kinds of stuff out there. And the, the growing furniture or growing things, you know, that's not a crazy concept. I mean, science fiction has been talking about that for a long time. Um, for a long, longer the time than we had uh, iPhone ideas. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. So, I mean, it's like, it's not even sort of, that idea isn't even so far-fetched that we can't even, you know, it's been part of fiction for a long time anyway. So it's not, it like the, the leap into reality or the leap into the acceptance of it is, I think is is not that, that far. Um, I wonder, like, yeah, mushroom mushroom buildings and mushroom uh, furniture is kind of crazy and kooky, but what are the things that nobody's really ever thought about before that are under lock and key right now that, that are being talked about? I mean, yeah, that, that's the stuff that's super cool. I have no idea. What it is. <laughs> I do know that, like, on JPL, there are many buildings that people, my friends are like, I've never been in there before, never going to be allowed to go in there before. It's a total black box. Oh yeah, it is a lot of. Uh, so there's gotta be crazy things. stuff. But but it but it also has yeah. a lot of <laughs> unclassified prototype labs gathering dust of where I've seen I've seen a, a little regolith processing prototype. It looks like a Tonka truck, and I've not even mm-hmm. talked about it here before. And it just goes <laughs> across the regolith and scoops it up, and it internally processes it to uh, separate out the oxygen. And uh, I'm like, okay, so you could, we could go set up a colony and you already have the functioning model that you could just send a bunch of these to just be gathering oxygen on the surface. Mm-hmm. And said, yep, there's just no funding for it. Mm-hmm. In, into, into the closet mm-hmm. it goes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> to be forgotten. <laughs> there's, a, there's a super intelligent, sentient AI that is, just doesn't have the money behind it. So it's just like hanging out someplace. Yeah, it's, it's disconnected. It's just, it's unnetworked in a basement somewhere. Yeah. Right, right. It's like, oh, if I could just fundraise 5,000 more bucks, then I would really make a God. difference. Just, money for the point of this for all of our viewers, fund education at all levels. <laughs> that's the most I want to get into politics, but yeah, that's, 
One other thing about the Mayak, and this, this kind of expounds on the fungi thing, another one that was on uh, phase two selection was uh, fungi to make soil from asteroids. So the proposition was to take certain, mm. to pick highly carbon rich asteroids and then use different type of fungi, which will have to be tailored to be able to work in near vacuum conditions. Um, yeah. But that mm-hmm. they can eat these asteroids bit by bit to slowly create soil that we really, because the whole premise was getting into hydroponics do work, but once you start scaling up past a certain point, they begin to become mm. unwieldy in the amount of mechanization that you need, uh, as well as nutrient injection, and everything else. Versus mm. if you could have, you know, a giant rotating spaceship, but you did have, you know, kind of old-fashioned agricultural style in it, and have those natural soil systems right. be, you know, bringing nutrients, mm. processing, breaking things down, trying trying to you know take as much of the Earth ecological systems with us. Because they, because they still work mm-hmm, the best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I, and it's so cool that, like, I don't know. I feel like when I was a kid, when we were maybe when we were kids, um, nobody was really overt about that as a mission, like colonizing another planet or finding life or anything like that. I just think it's kind of cool that in the past twenty years, probably. NASA's just kind of been like, all right, we're just going to tell you what we're doing. We're trying to figure out how humans can can live on live on another planet for a long term. We're trying to figure out, you know, how we can detect if there's life on another planet. It's just there's no, it's not couched anymore in like necessarily even having to justify it for how it's impacting you know life on Earth. Although the, I mean, they do why, that. Too, why can't but, we just send people there and figure it out? So just put me in a ship. And I'll tell you if there's life on other planets. <laughs> I mean, that's DARP, you know, DARP, one of the DARPA projects uh, is to have within four. On, for Europa or Ganymede? No, 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 no. Let's say one of the DARPA projects, the, DARPA, the, the, the R&D division, oh, oh, okay. um, is to have a test of a nuclear thermal propulsion system, I think, sometime in the next four years. Uh, with and Lockheed's actually do that's something on the internet. This is not some sort of classified hidden thing. Um, that uh, lo- yeah, all of a sudden the signal right just cuts out. Yeah, and helicopter exactly. Um, you're going to work tomorrow, and your manager's like, "Hey, John, we got to talk. Are you coming around? All the doors lock. Uh, oh my god! Um, exactly. But right now, yes, we. We never yes, hear we from them again. You know, do do yeah, we have right. the technology to get to Mars right now? Yes, we do. We, we but sure. it would take us nine months, and there's a really good chance that the crew would not survive. Exactly. And and so, radiation Why? mostly. Radiation. Yeah. Let's talk about what, that. Uh, for for novices like me, why? Why, why can't you just throw them in like a Martian, you know, like the movie The Martian? Just throw them in a spaceship like that. They, they, they survive two round trips, no problems whatsoever. We don't know what kind of shielding that spaceship the had. They never really talked I mean, about it. Yeah, that, and that, that was clearly yeah. also not 
or I, I think that that was certainly not the first ship that went to Mars. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, right. That right. looked like a ship that would be going back and forth. But now, I think they built it over quite a period of time and upgraded it. And, yeah. Yeah. So, so let me, let me pose this question to you, scientists. Is it more likely on the first trip to Mars that the shielding fails or that the psyches fail and that they kill each other? Shield. The shielding. Yeah. Really? I mean, I'm not saying that people aren't going to go crazy and, and, and not have a hard time a with it. long time. Super, super, super. But I, I have a feeling that the first crew for that, especially that long of a trip. Well, for one thing, we've had people up on the space station for well, over nine months. So totally, you know, they're, but, 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 yeah. but, 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 but let me, let me counter that. That's a quick capsule ride right back to earth. Yeah. You're no the problem. Sure. security of earth. Sure. <laughs> this, this is true. Yeah. Totally. And you can see it. Yeah. Totally. yeah. We, no, I get it. Never, I get it. We've never sent people to a place where if anything really goes wrong, true. they're just dead. Like we yeah. don't know what but that'll do, do to them. But I do know that Psychologically. You know, the people who would go to Mars first would be, heavily psychologically vetted and yes of course who knows on a trip that long what could happen but i think that we would pick we would be take the utmost care in choosing people yeah that that wouldn't be the issue or, or yeah it's like i mean sorry to interrupt john but it's like the it's like would probably go back to like mercury time right you pick you pick nine guys or seven honestly at the end who are like all right here's the deal we're gonna strap you to a missile and we're gonna send you up and i know it's like 15 minutes or maybe a day or something like that but you're still all alone no no there's no context for this in 1961 um but john you found the right people like uh but ben i i i i i i'm actually gonna push hard on this because sure Pandora's box was opened past that. When they got shot up to a rocket, there was no cell phones. There was no internet. There was no media that made you feel connected to everybody all the time. Mm -hmm. To to, to cold turkey that, we just don't know how that's going to go. And John, to your point, Gordo was psychologically vetted. And we all know that Gordo. Mm, Yeah, but he was also um, dealing with intense relationship issues at that time as well. Well, well, okay, okay. I mean, maybe then this is actually a case of where, I don't know, maybe you actually have to have partners or couples that, that part that crew, that I crew think, for something that's that interesting. You need the, that extra, yeah, they yeah, can't just all be platonic because they will eventually all hate each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, I mean, or I'm sure a ton of like military training, I mean, you've got to, you, you know, one of the one of the main tenets of that is take a bunch of strangers and make them so close to each other that they will die for each other. Basically, you know the other the other part about going to Mars on the first ship that we didn't contemplate, unlike any other space journey we have ever done, that is a one way trip. That is not. I think a that they're going to try to make it a two way trip, but it might turn out I, to be a one way trip. No, no, no. I, I, 
I mean, Elon's even said he's like that first but, trip. Ben, I think trip. to clarify is not like not one way trip, not implying that the people on it are going to die. Just implying that that first round of people are not coming back. Not coming back. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Not, not exactly. Sorry. Not, not implying their death, implying that there's just no, no way in hell that we're pushing off Mars with enough fuel to see, the, bring them back on that. See, that's interesting though, that because I feel trip. like then we kind of come circle back to the psychology of are the people who might be best suited to be okay for a one-way trip to Mars, be the best people to be part of a crew together. Cause remember, when, remember years ago when there was that call for the people to go to Mars and there were all these people signing up, submitting videos, and a lot of them were, right. I hate humans. I hate everyone. I'd be perfect for this mission because I never have right, to see right. anyone again. And each of these people in isolation might make great candidates for a solo trip to Mars, but I don't know if they can function together as a yeah. colony. I think you still need to rotate people. I mean, Elon is going to be the king of Mars. He's going to die there. But maybe everybody else you shuffle out eventually. Maybe it's year. Maybe it's, it's, I mean, likely it would be by default multi-year trips just because of the orbital mechanics and the distance. Um, they're going to have to be, they're going to be some new level of people. You know, we had our, our astronauts, you know, were kind of these mythic people. And now we're, we're sort of coming back down to the realm of the normal person can be an astronaut. I don't think we're going to be sending any normal people. Right, right. To, to Mars. No, right. I guess that's what I meant about going back to to the the 60s is that there were those guys were picked for a very specific pur- purpose and at the time, yes, there wasn't the same sort of connection, but still in that time frame it was totally totally new frontier and they really, you know, there's this myth about those early astronauts about their stamina and about their how they could handle pressure and they were all test pilots and blah blah blah. I, the shuttle era kind of got away with, from that, and you could have professors go up, and now we can have William Shatner go up. But I agree with John that it, I think it might go back to a much more focused candidate pool for that kind of thing. Um, and then maybe it'll become commonplace. And we'll I, want, I want to pivot here a little bit back to something that you said, Matt, about the, the Pandora's box of between 1961 and now, now we live in a, a time when we are all instantaneously connected by technology. And the thing is, we actually exist, particularly really now, I'd say in the, the latter portion of the 20th century into the 21st, in kind of the weird... Humanity was... was like we, we, we live in a weird period of time where we all kind of came under the banner of one people. Prior to this, going back into antiquity, humans were nomadic, you know, then started presumably somewhere in a relatively small area, evolved, spread out across the globe. Eventually, civilization arose. All of these different human groups began to contact each other over you know, thousands of years. Nations are created, empires are created, wars are fought. We finally made it all the way into the modern age. We're now all one planet that can communicate instantly with itself. However, there is the speed of light that is a hard stop. So once we start venturing out, really not really the moon, but beyond that to Mars and forevermore outward, we will again become 
nomadic people. And this is something that Carl Sagan was really mm. touching upon mm -hmm. in, in Pale Blue Dot. Is, you know, and, and then if you keep projecting that outward, once we're spreading to the stars, you know, if we're, if we're precluding faster than light travel, we will then be become endlessly separated and endlessly diverging in our paths. So we, we live in a special time where all humans are together, but we really actually shouldn't think of that as a psychological norm. Mm -hmm. And we should prepare ourselves for the expectation that someday we will again live in a spread out universe where we communicate via light speed message at whatever delay that is. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's my read of Dune. That's going back to what I was saying before. <laughs> I always think about that in that, you know, cause it's all humans, right? So they, you know, they spread all around. You've got these different, like the, um, the machines on X and the Mentats and stuff like that. And they've all kind of specialized. And then this whole prophecy is to kind of bring all those talents together again. Yeah, they really have become almost different species at that point in, in Dune. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, totally. It's still weird. Or I, I think carbon, um, I'm about to say carbon silicon steel. Uh, I think that altered carbon in that it's like a vast interstellar world that's once again though all human mm. and it i don't know it's just weird to me like mm. the idea of humans as being the only thing the only being to just spread out across the stars forever and ever i straight up just feel like we don't deserve it like we have we have to mm. hit some kind mm. of we have to hit some kind of border or barrier or some reality check. Because imagine if, you know, at some point in time it gets easy again for us and we literally have the entire universe and we just uh -huh. learn no self-restraint. <laughs> so you basically well, just is... said that we're not worthy. I was just saying that, right. I mean, right. we, we're going to have to learn a lot more self-restraint to make it through this time. But then I think we're going to have to try to fight to not lose it again. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking about a scale of probably millions of years. Uh, or, I mean, what do you, what is your likelihood, John, that we make it to a base on another planet? You mean that if we just we even make ourselves? it to Mars? Or the moon? I mean, I certainly think that we can make it to the moon. I think we can make it to Mars. Uh, I don't know. You know it, gets, it gets blurry, I think, after you try to project out, say, 100 years or so. You know, I imagine... You know, we, we kind of, you know, have this cyberpunk transhuman trying to, you know, live in some sort of digital realm, not actually any sort of like full upload of the matrix, but just it becomes such a part of our society. And I, I guess, do we have, are we able to stay ahead of all the natural disasters that are going to just keep shipping away at us, you know, by lives and, and mm. energy and and money and, and everything. It, it's just kind of a, mm -hmm. it's hard to say if I, I think that that'll be the gauntlet. It'll be if not to say if, if we are capable of making it to Mars, that we're safe. I think that we can make it to Mars and still 
then have things fall apart in the latter portion of the century. I don't think that we would make it to something as far as Jupiter unless we had really figured it out. We, we sort of come over whatever the climatological, ecological hump is. You know, we've found a, a sustained, we presumably have found fusion. We're able to seriously abate our carbon usage. Our consumerism methodology has changed dramatically. But I mean, this, these are you know, these aren't just scientific shifts. These are huge ideological shifts that we don't know even if mm -hmm. push comes to shove mm -hmm. and things are falling apart, if people are going to embrace, you know, embrace giving up what they had. I mean, well, just meaning, like, you know, we mm -hmm. live in a very consumeristic era. Nothing about it seems sustainable. Mm -hmm. No one's really going to be the first one to be like, oh, I'm totally down to just give up all of this because that's what we need to do for a while until we've sort of reached a bound. <laughs> you're, not, you're not down for that. <laughs> yeah, it's it. Maybe it's it. Our, our not being able to do this, not being able to communicate, not being able to have our, you know, our Netflix and our, mil our million. Say, that's because you just know you rule the caveman universe. <laughs> you're just ready you've been ready for civilization to fall that's why you work out just as a contingency <laughs> it is I'm not even gonna front John knows this I work out 100% as a contingency for the apocalypse there is no lie if you have that. to punch your way out of LA at the end um Oh, yeah, uh, I mean that's. Did ben, did I ever? I don't know if I ever told you about this, or if maybe it was just a when Matt and I discussed it. I found a poster, maybe six months ago at work, that was in the uh, the Deep Space Building. It was just on someone's cube, and it was a big, probably six mm -hmm. foot long, three or four foot tall poster that was made in 2000 and it was every year 2000 to 2200 and it was nasa mapping out all of our wow. plans for all of our space exploration and it was nice vicious it, it was yeah <laughs> you said it, it was I, walked, I walked by it did a wow. double take walk back and then just kneeled down on the ground and started reading it because it had each planet broken down uh, going from top to bottom and then left uh -huh. to right was time. And it had all these different lines that were all the different mm -hmm. uh, journeys and all the different missions and how they interlinked and how there would be ones that would build upon to create new mm -hmm. ones. But I'm talking, uh, let's see, mm -hmm. moon, moon base by 2011. Um, let's see, mm -hmm. Mars colony by, I think, 2039, space elevator by 2065. That one, I, that one I just thought, oh, man, wow. I don't know, maybe, wow. I think we've come a really long way or I've had a really intense reality check on material science in 21 years because I don't think there's anybody who would think yeah. that, that, that that's like a 500-year project if we even, if we even could produce... Mm -hmm. 
perfect carbon nanotubes at infinite length right now as as much as possible <laughs> for the next you know, for the next decades Thank you. to make 22,000 miles or 24,000 <laughs> miles of it um but, <laughs> jesus uh but you know it, it was <laughs> yeah and, and but, but it was magnificent it was like kind of like in some way of uh much closer to for all mankind well for all mankind was kind of like a semi-realistic in between uh, this one had you know by the end of the century yeah. we started doing some venus missions by the 21 2030s we've got hmm. jupiter colonies going we start terraforming Venus in 21-something. Mm. We've finished terraforming Mars by before 2200. Wow. And we are, we, um, I love at the top, there's a thought huh. experiment, towing Mercury outward to become Venus's moon. <laughs> and, and, and <laughs> that Wait, was in that. That, that, was, that, that was in the very top right it, under Mercury. It oh, was a thought experiment. The... No, no, no. Yes, that was something age? in the Golden Age. Yeah, but well, that, that also happened poster. in the Golden Age. Or oh. no, in the Golden Age, they towed Venus to a higher orbit. But that was probably several hundred thousand years in the future. They have right, almost right. God-level technology. That, that if for that world, I could believe. This, right, right, you know, right. and, and at the end of 2200, they send out the Nina the Pinta and the Santa Maria as three interstellar ships to, I think, to Tau Ceti, Alpha Centauri, and maybe Bernard Star as our first three interstellar missions in 2200. I'm like, Oh, I wish I could live if this future was real. The break, the breakneck paces or the anticipation of the technology breakthroughs is mind boggling, but I applaud them. I'm like, Oh, 2000. We were but, so full of hope. But even, yeah, they didn't even, see, even, they didn't no, see go, political go. apocalypse, they didn't apocalypse see and all that stuff like that. Um, so this was a NASA, yeah, right, yeah, just a couple, of, yeah, just months later. Um, this was a NASA branded poster. Nope. This wasn't yeah, just somebody's. This is okay. Wow. So I've seen versions of this, not as expansive as that, but um, you know, I've seen you know NASA's kind of thinking out decades from now and stuff like that, and it's fun to to see even. You know stuff that was produced in the early 2000s and kind of look back on it now but i've never seen something that's that far into the future and with that many sort of crazy harebrained schemes it's more of like here's the kind of probes that we want to send out yeah so, i i will send cool. you i'm gonna track pictures, that down and I'll, I'll also try to track it um but yeah i i i love the idea of towing mercury out into venus and then making it its moon. And then would you also move <laughs> Venus out more so that it would be habitable again? Well, okay. If we actually, I'm, between research and going through Pale Blue Dot, there's a lot of comprehensive info on terraforming Venus. Okay. Venus's atmosphere is 90 bars. So I think it's 90 times Earth's atmospheric pressure. So we would need to bleed off of the atmosphere tremendously before we could ever get anywhere close to habitability simply the act of removing that much atmosphere is a unfathomable task and if we try to convert the atmosphere into oxygen we would say if we had microbes in the atmosphere you'd end up with a 60 bar pressure pure oxygen atmosphere and i think about half a kilometer of carbon 
all across the surface of the planet, but then the atmosphere would have automatically ignited by that point, which would just put carbon back in. So you, put, so you just <laughs> go back in a circle. Um, but also besides that, the act of, unless borrowing some sort of mythical gravity controlling technology, the act of moving a planet requires a large percentage of the mass of that planet. So I think an example was starting with, if you try to move Earth to Mars's orbit, and say as the Earth, um, say as the sun was expanding over a very long time, I think you would need to say if you used a whole fleet of chemical rockets and they were all strapped to the Earth on one side, you pushed, you would have to use up 80 or 85% of the Earth's mass in order to move the remaining 15%. It's the rocket equation, just on a grand scale. Uh, if you used yeah, yeah. more efficient propulsion methods, such as ion drives, and then you know going up to fusion and antimatter, I think you can get away with keeping like 60 or 70% of the planet. But the time scale of moving it I think it's three billion years. And then there's the, the final, if you'd used a series of asteroid flybys to slowly move it, which would work. And so that way you don't have to expend mass to mm. move the planet. But once again, I think it's a multi-billion year time scale to try to move Mercury out, say, to, to Venus. It's mm. it's colossal. It would be. I think they said it would be like, you know, you'd have thousands of asteroids city-sized asteroids a day and a continuous stream that would be passing by the planet we'd have to set up a giant beltway of them across the solar system constantly passing by it I and mean, that's this is basically acts of god right right <laughs> john if 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 it was gonna Galactus. take if it was gonna take three billion years wouldn't there wouldn't that be an oxymoron though because wouldn't um the sun have expanded to a Position of which well, that would consume Mercury. They were using different examples. I mean, yes, in that case, it, it wouldn't matter anyway. <laughs> right, because it, it, uh, by a billion years, the sun's going to expand out to, uh, to a know, relatively no. far position, right? It really only started its expansion until no. about the last billion years of its life. So maybe like another three to four out. Yeah. We've got a um, good four, four but, and a half, yeah. You know, so... Oh, really? For, for, yeah. yeah. A good, for, all a good four and a half. For all intents and purposes, it would be... Uh, I'll be fine. <laughs> we, we can think of time as infinite and, like, as the Earth not... The sun not changing relative to the Earth. I mean, in, in terms of... of right. I won't say... T Mars is still the best terraforming option. But in terms of livability, Titan is actually really good. Um, I've been doing the go. That, I was going to say, Carl Sagan always said that too. Uh, Titan, um, Europa, I mean, there's there are moons in uh, the Venus, well, not Venus, what was I going to say? Uh, Jovian moods that are supposed to be, you know, really great candidates. Yeah, I mean, and Titan was always the you know, between, and I'm doing a lot of research for it um, because, well, one, because of the book, two, because I'm working on Dragonfly. And so we, you know, we, hmm. you know, learning about all the, you know, atmospheric and environmental conditions of Titan, 
how that's affecting, you know, what the mission is that they mm-hmm. want to do. Um, just to, to recap for, for people, Titan is orbiting Saturn. So that is 10 times the distance from the sun. So the radiation decreases with the square of the distance. So it only receives a hundredth of the sunlight uh, that Earth does. It is shrouded in an atmosphere that is four times as large as Earth's in terms of mass, uh, even though the planet, not planet, sorry, even though Titan is only uh, one seventh of Earth's gravity and considerably smaller. It's you know, considerably smaller than Mars as well. So the atmosphere stretches much higher into the sky. So the so low Earth orbit for Titan is actually about a thousand kilometers up. Um, but with that thick atmosphere, the surface pressure is only about forty percent more than Earth's is, and the temperature is freezing. It's several hundred degrees. Uh, I think two, I think 270 negative Fahrenheit um, or negative 270 Fahrenheit. Hmm. But that means that we wouldn't have to wear pressure suits. If you had, you know, you had respirators and you had a way of keeping somebody warm, you can actually walk around in relative comfort. You can be outside. There's no radiation threat because the atmosphere is so dense that it's absorbing all of that. Hmm. And, you know, there are lakes of liquid methane there are methane rain cycles i mean a large portion of the moon is made of ice so when it comes to energy you know we're going to have plenty of water um, that we could be using for either hydrogen for fuel oxygen for breathing um yeah it just it, it it's well, no, I was going to say... Just don't it, let him it, the, the atmosphere is mostly methane. <laughs> there's not enough oxygen to make any of the methane burn. But that's been something fun because... Oh, got it, I, got it, got it. When I was doing some research for if the Nomad crew was going to land on Titan, I was checking uh, Delta V numbers for, um, uh, you know, for escape velocity. And I didn't initially realize, but then I thought about it, it makes sense. Mars, not Mars, sorry, Titan has even less gravity than the moon. So on paper, it would only require about a comparable amount of delta V. However, because Mm -hmm. the atmosphere is so huge and extends so high, you need almost an Earth level of delta V to get off of Titan, which is annoying. And from the perspective of the SEV, the lander that the Nomad has, it wouldn't be able to do that. But I was looking at what were titan mm-hmm. sample return mission ideas which involve you have a sample and then you float mm-hmm. in a hydrogen balloon once again deriving hydrogen from the ice uh, and you float about 40 or 50 kilometers up then launch from there yes uh, and oh, also interesting yeah oh. i mean there's would that work i mean we do atmospheric launches of small rockets off of off of space off of planes, uh, it, you know, getting yeah, you know, those first Virgin five or Orbit, six miles of air are by far the thickest. I don't know if you're above Ooh. max Q at that point, but you know, if you're only going down in dynamic pressure from there, uh, but the same could be employed for Titan as well mm-hmm. as we can use methane 
which on Titan is just naturally in liquid form in a pool on the ground. You could literally pump it like water and use that with the oxygen from the ice as liquid mm. propellant. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So, I, really fast on this. Um, all right. So talk to me more about the atmosphere. So, so how it's... dance is it towards the bottom? I mean, is it? Yeah. If so the... One point four. I believe it's 1.4 times the pressure. Just real oh. quick for everyone, for everyone that's listening, hold on, guys, for everyone that's listening, John is not researching a book here. These are all just things that he's pulling from his head. I just feel like for people that can't watch this should know that he's literally using the brain computer <laughs> and not an actual textbook. <laughs> um. Yeah, so the pressure of 1.4 times that, of course. Um, oh, that's not bad. Yeah. And so it's oh, here. No, go ahead. So, all right. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, so that's how, you're, how, how you'd be able to sort of replicate walking around because the gravity is, well, what did you say, one seven times, Earth. sometimes less than Earth? One seventh of Earth. Okay. But then you've got an atmosphere that has a little bit well, more no, pressure. Well, no, it's not that. Earth, it's just so that it somehow you know, we have bulky pressure suits on Mars because it's near a vacuum. Yeah, so there's there's no atmospheric pressure to of balance course. our bodies. There on Titan, it's a closer thing we're going to come to Earth. Right, right, right. The air is a little bit thicker, but it means that we don't need to wear rigid structure mm-hmm. the, our bodies aren't going to explode nor is that atmosphere going to crush mm-hmm. us might feel a little might feel a little uncomfortable right. i do want to uh, just right, right, right. make a quick um redaction there titan's atmosphere is about 1.19 times as massive as earth's in total before i said uh four so i, I misspoke i wanted to correct that um but another thing about titan that is really cool because the atmosphere is so cold uh, the viscosity is much higher. No, lower. Higher. Oh, gosh. Now I need to remember that. What's that mean? Mm. It means the thickness um, of the liquid. Yeah. Oh, the atmosphere. Viscosity no, of what, though? The of the itself. methane pools or the... Um, so oh, what yeah, that means is that it only requires 140th of the power to fly something for lift for lift capability so mm. that's why for example the little you know one thing the little martian helicopter is basically a motor a battery a solar panel and wings and it has to go i think it rotates at right, right, right. rpm uh this the titan one yeah yeah it's able to use turbine blades that equivalently on earth would have to be the size of ones used in a energy generating wind turbine to achieve the same type of lift here they only have to be able to three or four feet across mm. um so you know that multiple almost two orders of magnitude difference in energy required to fly means that you can just easily fly over titan once it, you could actually have a person big enough wings can flap and fly on Titan. 
So it's just, I just think that right, right, right. there's a lot of huh. interesting psychological benefits to it. You know, it's, it's like Mars, Mars is closer to earth. You know, Mars also, we can see the stars. It has similar days and nights as earth does. Um, but there's something to be said about a place where, you know, say you just wear a, a heat suit and a respirator and you can fly around. And you can be on this. Yeah, you can be on the surface all the time. And it rains. Mm-hmm. It doesn't cool. rain often, but it it does methane rain. And apparently, methane rain is these huge drops, and they fall really slow because of the gravity. So, I think it's just it's a it's a cool, mm-hmm. very alien feeling place. And who? Yeah. And I mean, it's raining farts. <laughs> maybe some. Maybe someday <laughs> we'll so bring it back. It's amazing. <laughs> I just think it'd be cool to see Jupiter. Sorry. Yeah, Saturn. that's well. That's the one thing is you. That's the one thing is you can't. That would be really the atmosphere is cool. opaque. You're not going to be able to see Saturn from Titan, which is a bummer. Um, uh, I oh, know. Yeah, yeah. Also, also How a weird aspect of Titan How is that it's brighter at twilight. Uh, the way that light. Um, hmm. Yeah, the way that light scatters because that the it scatters at such in intense the, yeah. angles because of i think i think because they have this depth that mm. when it's you're yeah at the, at the tangent points of the planet and lights passing over the atmosphere it's actually redirecting said it was 100 to 200 times brighter at twilight than it is during the day and during the and during the day is wow akin to wow. a heavy overcast day on earth which is still pretty good i mean that's a hundredth of the sunlight but that's huh. I was kind of expecting, oh god, yeah, is it just yeah. pitch black in there? Because then that was going to kind of ruin the possibility of uh, humans mm. exploring there. If you just go down and it's pitch dark and you can't see anything, it's not really very fun. Mm-hmm. Um, Where, where's uh, where's Ganymede? The moons. John, run through the other like um, plan uh, um, moons that people talk about, like Ganymede, Europa. Um, what other, like, how, just the to key, round us out here tonight, the what, important, what is what the, the important validity of those? Okay. Important yeah. ones, yes. The four Jovian moons, Callisto, Ganymede, Europa, and Io. Um, fun fact, Io, Europa, and Ganymede mm-hmm. are locked in a one to four resonance. So for every, you know, over billions of years, they eventually synced up because of the gravitational interactions between each of them. So for every orbit that Io does, we're sorry, for every orbit that Ganymede does, Europa does two orbits and Io does four in perfect sync. Um, So Io, hot, tons of volcanic activity because of tidal forces, sulfur, um, Sulfur. getting absolutely mauled by radiation because it passes it passes through jupiter's intense radiation belts and totally tons of ionization is happening all over its surface we would get our dna would get shredded no um not a cool europa likely candidate yeah, yeah, yeah. or you know one of the likeliest candidates for life in our solar system presumably massive subterranean oceans mm-hmm. that have also been kept liquid and warm by tidal forces from Jupiter. Ganymede, largest moon in the solar system, only other body besides planets in the solar system that has a 
magnetic field. And I shouldn't say not all, not all planets in the solar system have a magnetic field, um, mm -hmm. which makes it favorable for habitation. Also, it does indicate that it has a significant subterranean ocean as well. Uh, Callisto, fourth moon furthest out, kind of just like a wannabe Ganymede, not as cool, but it's a gigantic... But it's a gigantic moon, and it's the farthest and safest from uh, from Jupiter's radiation. Yeah, the other significant ones. True. Amazing. The other uh, yeah. significant ones, obviously, Titan, as we spoke before. Uh, Imp other important one from Saturn, Enceladus, which is much smaller than Europa. Yeah. But oh yeah. It's much closer to the planet, so it has also had mm -hmm. more intense. Mm -hmm. uh, tidal forces and it has cryovolcanoes active cryovolcanoes that spew hundreds of kilometers into space um besides that i mean you have titania mm -hmm. miranda oberon of which are moons of uranus not something to i mean they're kind of there they're decent sized moons the last really cool one is titan not titan sorry is triton neptune's moon uh, and Triton is also a huge moon. Sure. Yeah, it yeah, yeah. is one of the few objects in the solar system in a retrograde orbit, which indicates that it was not originally a moon of Neptune and was a trans-Neptunian object that was captured at some point. Uh, also appears to have active cryovolcanoes and unknown as to what its subterranean activities are. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean that's kind of there. I, mean, I hope we find space whales. Right. Like um, a super like a like a billion year long peaceful and, and just to, you know civilization of space whales that we all literally only come to know that they exist right, and then right. quarantine that right. Enceladus or, or Europa forever <laughs> and never and, and leave it alone and never try to get exactly. to know them and exactly. never ruin their lives. Exactly. And so we don't ruin their lives. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Why? Because yeah. I could just see us ruining right. it. Right. Right. Exactly. That's all we need. Totally. Totally. Just like we did in the Expanse, right? We did ruin all of those all of those native. Uh, uh, I, mean, uh, I mean, here's the question: You know, as we start to colonize Mars, you know, we, we don't find we, we haven't found any life there yet, or evidence of, of prehistoric life. Once we have a bunch of colonies, if someone, well, one, the ability to find true Martian life uncontaminated will get more difficult. And then let's say way down the road, we eventually get to a point where we start terraforming. And then somewhere, well, once, once we start terraforming, I have to assume that we're probably going to destroy whatever original life might have that might still be there and if we didn't and we still somehow definitively found yep. martian life in the middle of terraforming do we halt a planetary scale terraforming project for the sake of a scientific discovery right. probably not i say like that's and and so unfortunately like, i'm just afraid that we find life or if we find evidence of their life having been in the past and we're not ruining its day, cool. That's that's useful to us from a psychological perspective and we're not destroying anything. If we found active life on 
any of those other worlds, they have to be off limits mm -hmm. ethically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of course. Um. Yes, but and no. no. I was for this. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm not saying. I'm saying yes. I agree with you both, unequivocally. Absolutely sure. no. You hubristic scientists think that the government would stop anything because of something they found on another planet because you could look at North America we didn't stop when we found life wow. <laughs> when we migrated here so well listen, in a and I don't even know if that's I don't even know if that's a government thing I think you know let's let's look back on King Elon on Mars like if he's if he's the first trillionaire and he's funding this whole thing like What's the incentive for him to, to stop stop terraforming? Nothing. It's his. It's his I think call. the government would probably try to say like, "Hey, you probably don't want to do this." And they're like, "Hey, what are you?" Yeah, I mean, Matt, I could feel months? when you know, in a far future, if we were interstellar, and we had and our technology allowed us to have easy options, maybe. But I mean, once again, you know, if we sent a colony ship mm -hmm. to another solar system. And we get there, and we find out that there was a whole bunch of native life on the planet. Well, one, honestly, if we ever found a planet that was habitable enough that we could just send people there, it's gonna have a bunch of life on it. I, I don't, I don't think there's chemically really any scenario sure, yeah, where you're gonna have a planet with a very high concentration of oxygen from purely inorganic methods. I like guess this so yeah, we're gonna go there. We're gonna be like, cool. We want that. We're gonna steam we're gonna steamroll it over like we've done everything before. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like our, our restraint is good. No, yeah, what are you saying? Especially Yeah. I was just gonna say, especially if the point of the mission yeah, is they're... for humanity's survival. Like that would, that would be like, it's the whole reason why we're going there. And then we'd say, oh, sorry. Probably not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, 100%. Um, so with with that. Yeah, um, I think, I went, I, think I went through all my sticky notes of topics that I wanted good. to cover this week. Do you have all the? Do you have a sticky note of each moon that we that you focused on? I know all by the way. Part. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is what I want. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Now well, it's been. It's nice to talk to you guys. Yeah, we'll 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 make sure that we're more regular for everybody. And uh, th th this sort of smorgasbord of episodes was. Uh, <laughs> was very fun. I think we'll have Chris Matman of JPL NASA on very soon. I'm going to talk to oh, him good, this good. week and we'll get him uh, we'll get him on the podcast. It'll be really cool. That's good. Do you want me to follow up with the yeah, NA cuz I want to find out some inside info about Yeah. Let's get him. Okay. What they're about and okay. and what's going on in there cuz there's some wild thoughts. Um one more I did I do want to shamelessly plug it. myself, but uh, the Lucy Spacecraft has been launched, and <laughs> yeah, yes. listen, I told you, we watched it, we watched it, congratulations, I mean, we didn't watch it live, because it was like four in the morning, but 
we watched it because oh, my daughter's amazing. named Lucy, and I wanted to show her, like, hey, there's yeah, this spacecraft. It's, so, um, she was very excited. And I just think it's different from it. previous missions in that we haven't sent a space, we haven't sent a time capsule to ourselves yet in a space way. And, you know, reading, reading mm-hmm. the things on the plaque and knowing that it could be mm-hmm. out there for 2 million years. And just to think like what are, what the world's going to be like, and what people are going to be like mm-hmm. someday when someone does retrieve it, it just uh, gives you a lot to dream about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Cause Voyager, Voyager not meant to be scooped up. Yeah. By humans, so, meant to be seen by somebody else that's cool yeah cool no, it's, uh, well congrats congratulations it, on that that's awesome you know, these missions take a long time from conception to launch and just with so many things going on in the pandemic you know when, when the pandemic hit a year and a half ago i went to my my tech lead and i asked mm-hmm. him so are these nasa shutdowns government shutdowns is this gonna delay stuff with lucy and he looked at me and he said the planets are still moving <laughs> there's a there there is no halting. There is no halting a launch window for an interplanetary uh, mission. So we worked <laughs> through the whole pandemic with no stopping, despite you know a lot of different things slowing down and shutting down. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's like there's been things with ULA, mm-hmm. and you know whether or not there's going to be uh, supply line mm-hmm. issues. You know, are we gonna? Are there gonna be instrumental or tech issues that would make us push the launch window, uh, so that we would have to do it a year later? And um, nope, she's mm-hmm. fine. So I can't wait. You know, seven or eight years from now, we can uh, cool. sit down around a screen and we can look at some really nice high def images of some asteroids that we've never seen before. And and who knows. Matt, maybe we'll find one of that. Maybe yeah. we'll find that gold asteroid out there. That would be uh, <laughs> um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, advantageous. Oh, so Elon would just say, "Oh, <laughs> it'd be golden." <laughs> On that note, <laughs> thank you, everybody. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see, exactly. we'll see you again. Soon. All right, good, great to see you and, too. Yeah. Nice to see you guys. <laughs>